Thank you for visiting Crossland Community Church. We are located in Terre Haute, Indiana. For more information, please visit us online at cocchurch.com. Let's listen to one of our Sunday morning messages. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amminadab. Amminadab fathered Nation. Nation fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. We've gotten quite a bit of feedback on the uh, dramatic reading. You've enjoyed that. That is a neat way to start our services, I think. The, the, the reading of the scripture like that is really very pretty. Let me give you a recap quickly of where we've been. If you are a visitor with us to Cross Lane for the very first time, we are in the middle of a series, or at the end of a series actually, we'll wrap it up today, series on the book of Ruth. It's been a great experience for me, and judging from the feedback we've gotten, you've learned a lot from that also. Um, The story of Ruth is really the story of one family that begins with Elimelech and Naomi. They have two sons. They are in Bethlehem. They go through a period of famine, and Elimelech decides to move his family to Moab. In Moab, The boys take on Moabite wives, and shortly thereafter, Elimelech passes away. Not long after that, the boys pass away as well, leaving these three women to be together, Naomi, uh, Orpah, and Ruth. They decide, Ruth decides to go back to Bethlehem, and on the way, they stop and have a conversation. Ruth and Orpah are given really, uh, wouldn't call it an ultimatum, but, but Naomi really pleads with them to go back to Moab. She says, look, I don't have a whole lot for you. I can't um, I can't provide for you. There's, there's no one to take care of me, much less take care of you. And uh, I have nothing. So why don't you go back to Moab and find some nice Moabite boys and have some Moabite babies and, and you know, have a life there in Moab. And uh, Orpah decides to return to Moab. And the Bible says very clearly that she returns to Moab to her family and to her gods, which makes us know that this is a spiritual decision that these women have made. Ruth, on the other hand, decides that she will stay with, with uh, Naomi, will continue on to Bethlehem, and she basically says, everything that you are about, I'm going to be about. I'm going to immerse myself into your world. I'm going to serve your God. I want to be a part of your people. I want to be a, considered a part of your family. And so 
Uh, that's what happens. They get to Bethlehem. The women come up to Naomi and they, they say, hey, you're Naomi. And she's been gone 10, you know, well over 10 years now. And she says, don't call me uh, Naomi. Call me Mara, which means bitter. She's got some problems with God. She's not all that happy with the way things have gone. She really looks at God more as a foe than a friend. And uh, so that's where things pick up. Then she, uh, they, they get to, to Bethlehem, and it's, it's kind of bleak, if you really want to be honest about it. The, the ladies don't have a whole lot of anything. They're starving to death, pr- pretty much. And so Ruth says, hey, can I go glean in the field? She asks Naomi's permission to do that. Um, gleaning is a, is a, was really kind of a service provided to the poor of the time. It was the soup kitchen of the day. It was the can collecting uh, of the day. It's something that you don't want to have to do, but if you have nothing else, you're pretty thankful to have that. And so Ruth uh, went out into a field, and, and in she, she just happens to pick a field that this uh, very wealthy, uh, very single, very uh, God-fearing man named Boaz owns, and Boaz happens to show up on the day that she works that very first day, looks out, and sees this girl out in the field, and he recognizes her as not someone that he has hired. In other words, he doesn't recognize her. And he looks at the young man who runs his business, and he says, who is that? And the guy says, that's, that's Ruth, the Moabite. And that's when it clicks for Boaz, this is that woman that I've been hearing so much about. Because Ruth apparently was just one of these people. You know, you're, you're around people from time to time that just stand out to you. And I think that Ruth must have been a person like that. I think that Ruth was, was probably, uh, um, I imagine Ruth to be a very beautiful woman, but I imagine her to be beautiful on the inside as well, just this personality that um, was, was drew people to her is just what it's that's purely speculation on my part but it's how I imagine her and uh, so uh, some things happen where Ruth and and Boaz begin to kind of talk a little bit um, he brings food for his workers and he has lunch and he makes sure that Ruth is included in all that he gives her community he gives her some sense of friendship and family and we called that the first date. It really wasn't the first date, but that's kind of what we called it. And then he says, you can stay and glean like this because in the one day that she gleaned, she made about two weeks' worth of salary. So pretty lucrative deal for her. And he says, you can stay until the end of the season, which was about six or seven weeks. So Ruth was going to be able to go to Boaz's field and glean for six or seven weeks. That would be a pretty good deal for her. The problem was she was going to the field and coming back. Naomi is, you know, kind of like every day at the end of the workday, did he say anything more to you? Is he interested in you? Or, you know, because you can kind of get the sense that Ruth kind of likes Boaz. Boaz, we kind of find out later, he's kind of oblivious to the idea that someone of Ruth's caliber would be interested in him. I tell uh, men with beautiful wives all the time, you outkicked your coverage, which means you, you got a wife way prettier than you are is what that means. And, and uh, I think that that's what happened with Boaz. Boaz was thinking, man, this girl's out of my league. There's no way she's going to want to have anything to do with me. And uh, he does not realize that she is attracted to him. And so um, they, they, they do this deal for six weeks. She comes home at the end of every day and nothing. He hasn't, you know, he's just like most men, doesn't know what to do with a woman. He can't close the deal. He doesn't really know how to figure this thing out. And uh, at the end of it, when, when it's really looking like there's no hope that they're going to get together, I mean, it's looking pretty bleak for a relationship here, uh, Naomi gives some pretty risky advice to Ruth. And she says, go to the threshing floor, which is a kind of a party atmosphere. You have to understand that Bethlehem has been through a famine. They are now experiencing some harvests, and that's a reason for great celebration. Harvests were a great celebration time anyway. 
um, the men would have some money in their pocket. They would be um, enjoying some some uh, drink and some uh, food. Uh, they would be hanging out together. This was kind of like a guy time. And uh, she says, go down to the threshing floor, wait until he's done with all of his friends and all of his stuff, and then curl up at his feet. And uh, so that's what Ruth does. She, you know, Naomi tells her, put on your best dress and get your hair done and go to the tanning bed and do all that kind of stuff. Put your rings on and, and look pretty for him. Because at this point, the only way Boaz has ever seen Ruth is in the field working hard and she was a very hard worker and so she does what Naomi tells her to do and so when she gets to the threshing floor she waits until Boaz lays down she lays down at his feet and earlier in this story one of the things that we've seen is that Boaz prays a prayer over Ruth and he prays a prayer that God would spread his wings over her and would protect her and she then responds when she gets to his feet at the threshing floor he wakes up in the middle of the night probably thinking that she's a prostitute because prostitutes were known to visit the threshing floor to take advantage of these drunk guys with money and so she she is there and he wakes up and he says who are you great question guys great question to ask in the dark in the middle of the night if there's someone there who are you she says i'm ruth and then she says spread your wing over me another version might uh, of scripture says uh, spread your blanket over me another version says spread your cloak over me but the point is she's telling Boaz answer your own prayer you prayed this prayer over me to that God would provide a husband that God would provide for me be that guy and so uh, when she said spread your cloak that was really when you spread a blanket over someone a, a man would do that for a woman it was a symbolic thing to basically it was our version of slipping a, a, a an engagement ring on a finger this idea of covering someone with a blanket and so she says basically proposes that Boaz proposed to her and uh, he says you know that's a great idea you know blessed are you because you could have had any man in the in the whole city and you want me I mean that's kind of the way this thing reads you kind of get this idea that Boaz is kind of taken back like wow I mean this good-looking girl wants me I mean how good would that make you feel and he gets all excited but he says listen there's somebody else in line there is a kinsman redeemer to the family of Naomi and and he's he has the right to marry you he has the right to to do this before me and and you know, the time and the culture was different that's the way they did things and so he said before I can you know I'd love to marry you I would, I would love to marry you but I can't do that until we get this other guy out of the way <laughs> and so he goes to the the town gate the center, center of town and he and basically it's it's where all the activities going on the very next day he goes because he you know Ruth is that special he wants to have her so he goes and he gets some elders and he sits them down and he sits this guy down that's this kinsman redeemer who hasn't done his job because he was supposed to be the one that would come and take care of Naomi and Ruth and he hasn't done it and and so he learns from Boaz that he is the kinsman redeemer he learns that Naomi has got some land for sale with the land is going to come Ruth and he says hey do you want some land and the guy says yeah I'll buy the land and he says well you need to understand there's a mother-in-law that comes with the deal and Ruth comes with the deal well this guy's already married he's he's got kids of his own and he says basically if I do this thing I'm going to ruin the inheritance for my kids so I, I can't do this and and keep my inheritance for my kids intact because you know if I marry Ruth then we're going to have kids and then they're going to grow up and they're going to want some of the inheritance so he said I can't do it which is, you know, in the back of Boaz's mind, that's exactly what Boaz wants to hear. And so he says, uh, at first he says, I'll take the land. But then Boaz says, well, you got the mother-in-law and you got the, 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 daughter, the daughter-in-law, Ruth, 
um, that, that will be a part of the deal. And the guy says, well, I can't do that. So Boaz says, I'll do it. So last week, that's where we got to the idea that Boaz and Ruth are going to be together. We pick up our story today, Ruth chapter 4, verse 13. Ruth chapter 4, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. Finally, finally, they get married. Uh, Proverbs 12, 4 says this, A wife of noble character is her husband's crown, but a disgraceful wife is like a decay in his bones. It's not that a man doesn't want to be married. It's more that a man wants a crown than he does a sickness, okay? Understand that. He, he wants a crown, and uh, Ruth is a crown. Ladies, be encouraged by Ruth. She did not start off as a crown. She started off as a Moabite, uh, which was, you know, to a Hebrew man is, is a far thing from being a crown. She started off worshiping a god called Chemosh, who was a false god, she started off um, sexually active, probably. If she was from Moab, it would have been highly likely that she had experienced some things that you probably wouldn't want a wife to experience. Um, she has come from a fairly bad family. Otherwise, uh, something's gone on because she doesn't seem to have a father. No one has bothered to take care of her after her husband has died in Moab. Um, it just doesn't look good for her. Uh, she comes from a horrible town. Moab would have been a place that just uh, all kinds of things went on in Moab. And if you knew how Moab got started, it basically got started uh, from an incestuous relationship, and, and it was just not a place that you wanted to be from. Her husband had died. She had no children. She was not a virgin. She was new to town. She was broke. She was a new convert. But she loved God, and God loved her. And her heart changed, and she lived a life of faithfulness and repentance she uh, was a person of holiness and character. She's the kind of woman that men want to marry. Christian men want to marry a woman like Ruth. Because of that, she was a, a wonderful wife. Uh, ladies, it doesn't matter where you've come from. It doesn't matter what you have experienced. It doesn't matter you know, what things you've said or have been said to you or you've done or have been done to you. Uh, everything can change when you come to Christ. Everything can be made new. You can have a horrible, horrible, horrible beginning and a wonderful conclusion, as Ruth did. Her story begins uh, with a funeral. She's a widow. Uh, well, actually, she's, she's standing at her father-in-law's uh, graveside first, and then she experiences what it's like to be a widow herself, and it concludes with her as a beloved, uh, believing wife, and she worships the God of the Bible. It's a beautiful story of redemption. The story of Ruth is a story of redemption. If you've been here for the entire series, you've watched the progression of Ruth. You've seen Ruth as a in chapter one as a, a, a being a foreigner. In chapter two, she is a, a a lowly servant. In chapter three, she becomes a servant. And in chapter four, she is a beloved bride and a wife. There are two biblical parts of marriage. I just did a wedding yesterday. There are two parts to a wedding, uh, to a marriage. One is the covenant. The second part is the consummation. Here at Cross Lane, we encourage you to get married. Um, we, we believe strongly in that. We encourage you to wait until you get married before you have sex. And then once you get married, we encourage you to make up for lost time, pretty much. is how we, we think it ought to go. That's our position on the whole deal. Wait, 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 and then make up for lost time. That's kind of how we think it ought to happen. If you've already been sexually active and you, you know, you, you, you have stains from that and you feel dirty from that or you feel sinful from that here's what you need to understand Jesus died for you 
and Jesus can take those sins away and Jesus can, can uh, restore your soul and restore your, your, your heart and he can forgive that sin and you can have a life that has a clean slate uh, there is a, a sexual standard that is set within the bounds of marriage. One of the things that you'll hear guys say to one another, it's just the kind of stupid thing that guys would say, well, you know, if you don't sleep with her before you marry her, how are you going to know that she's any good in bed? Well, it, you know, if she hasn't touched anybody and you haven't touched anybody, and the only context you've got for this deal is what happens in your own bedroom, then there should be no problem, right? The, the real problem comes in that if one or the other of you is really, really seems to really know what's going on on your wedding night uh, chances are good you've been around a little bit and that might not be a good thing so uh, our our stance here is that we want you to wait until you get married before you have sex that inside of marriage that's a beautiful thing it should happen often we believe scripture is clear on that um, that that uh, men and women are given to each other in the marriage uh, bed for pleasure and for procreation, and so we just encourage you to do it that way. That's the right way to do it. Though. So the standard for one another uh, really is a stand. The standard of beauty happens within the marriage uh, uh, arrangement. Here, Boaz is going to sleep with his wife, and I want you to see that the Bible is not afraid to talk about sex, but it does it in the context of marriage, and and in so doing, it it shows it as an honorable and pure and good thing. Uh, the second part of verse 13. Then he went to her. Others, uh, the version that you read, that the, the dramatic reading has been the English standard version of Scripture. If you've been wondering, what is that? That's kind of different. It's the English standard version. And it says, went into her. That's basically saying that they, they had relations. And the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. So isn't that something? First time they get together, their honeymoon, uh, you know, the Lord gives her conception and she bore a son. And about what you'd say about that is that um, Boaz is a sniper because, you know, she's been married for 10 years and no babies and then all of a sudden they get together and now there's a, there's a son. Yeah, that's settling in. That whole thing is kind of settling in. Um, you know, she's been married for 10 years, no babies. All of a sudden, she gets with Boaz, and uh, it's a pretty big day. She gets married, and she gets pregnant. Now, I realize, I realize that it's highly possible that she didn't get married on her wedding night, but it's kind of fun to think that maybe she did. You know, if she did, that's a big day, isn't it? I mean, you get married, and you get pregnant all on the same day. Is that anybody in here that's got that going on? <laughs> anybody conceive on their honeymoon? Did it, did, is there anybody in the room? I don't want to embarrass you, but, I mean, it happens from time to time. Do, I need, do we need a moment? The Lord has opened her womb. The Lord has opened her womb. And these are, um, th these are bookend illustrations of the providence of God. What I want you to see is that in chapter 1, God gave a harvest. And in the fourth chapter, what God gives is a baby. God is good. He does provide. He does bless. Uh, he does give. And Boaz and Ruth get the blessing of a child. They get the blessing of a son. Uh, Boaz and Ruth... Uh, get this wonderful blessing. It's a blessing to have a son. It's a blessing to have a daughter. It, it, you know, these kids, they, they're expensive. <laughs> they, they'll break your heart. Um, they will exasperate you. They will wear you out. They will, they will convince you at times that you are not a Christian. Um, you know, you, you, you'll have thoughts that you just can't imagine. You, 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 they put them in your heart. I tell people all the time, you, you can't imagine that you could love something as much as you love a baby. And then 
Uh, there are times that you, you can't imagine that you want to hurt something that bad, you know. Um, they're a lot of work, but man, are they a blessing. You know, you go through all that, and at the end of the day, you see them and you say, yeah, they're, they're a blessing. Uh, Boaz and Ruth get blessed, and they get each other, and they uh, get added to with this son. And um, verse 14 says, the women said to Naomi, the shift now will go to Naomi for a little bit, the mother-in-law. Praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. This little boy is going to become the redeemer. Verse 15, he will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. How many of you with grandkids would say, grandkids keep you young? He would say that, wouldn't you? How many of you... I mean, I watch you guys with grandkids. I see you. I see you. I've seen some of you become grandparents for the first time, and there is a definite change in your demeanor. There's a definite change in your outlook on life. Uh, quite frankly, I've seen some of you before kind of get kind of run down, and then all of a sudden the grandkids show up, and it's just like somebody flipped a switch for you, and it becomes a whole new experience. Kids make you happy. Grandkids make you happy. They, they keep life fun. And they tell Naomi, you are blessed now. You've, you, you're not bitter Mara anymore. You're, you're sweet Naomi again. I mean, you, you've got a grandchild. You, you know, God's blessed you. He's given you this wonderful thing. Now, this joy has been a long time coming for Naomi. Some of you have been through that yourself. Some of you have gone through periods and may be in a period right now where, where life is not happy for you life is not easy for you I mean you you might be in a stretch right now where you you wonder if the sun is ever going to shine again and I would just draw your attention to, to Naomi uh, this wonderful woman this faithful woman who has been through quite a bit has been very honest in her feelings for God I mean when she went back to Bethlehem she was very clear God is not my friend right now he, he I don't feel like he's he's really embracing me I feel like he's got his hand raised against me um, but she, you know, she had a faith in God and she stuck it out. Um, here's what I would say to you. It won't be this way forever. I, I know you think so. I know if you're in it right now or if, you're, if you've been in it for a while, you're thinking, man, is it ever going to get better? It's not going to stay that way forever. You, you might think so, but it's not. Naomi's life has been hard. But this grandson is going to make all the difference in the world for her. Verse 15, he will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Seven is the number of perfection. And the idea of seven sons really is the idea of the perfect family. If you, not to me, mind you, seven sons just simply means I got to feed them and educate them. And I, don't, I'm, I can't feed two of them right now. So uh, to think I'd have seven sons in my house eating me out of house and home, I'm not re sure I'm ready for that. But the idea behind that is perfection. The idea is that seven sons is like the perfect family. And they say to Naomi, look, you, you know, your life was destroyed, but it's perfect now. Your daughter-in-law, Ruth, she, she loves you so much. She loves God so much. And she's better to you than seven sons. You, you've got this, this perfect family situation now. Now you have a grandson. And what we see is, the, is this real full redemption of these two women. Ruth has gone from being an idolater to a worshiper. She's gone from being a widow to a wife. She's gone from being flat broke, I mean busted, poor, to being richly blessed. And she's gone from being a, a woman who was alone to being loved and now being a wife 
and a mom and, and, and God is good and, and he does good things and Ruth ran to God and he, he blessed her um, in this way. Naomi too has gone from being a bitter old woman to being a blessed grandma and her life too has tr- taken a dramatic turn for the better. Verse 16, then Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap and cared for him. The, f- the final picture that we have of Naomi in scripture is this picture of her with her grandson. Can't you just see her uh, in her rocking chair with this newborn baby? Can't you see the smile on her face and feel the contentment in her heart and think about all that she has been through now and think about what it must have been like for Boaz and Ruth to come and put this baby in her arms and for her to be able to hold it. And she's smiling and, and her life has been redeemed and she gets to be a grandma. Verse 17, the women living there said, Naomi has a son and they named him Obed. Now, this is kind of strange, I think. When I read this, I thought, that's, that's kind of odd. The neighbors come over, and they name the baby. How many of you, now, just think about this, how many of you would be willing to let your neighbors name your baby? I mean, I've heard some names. I definitely don't want anybody in Hollywood naming any of my kids, because then you get a, you know, a moon or a, an apple or something crazy like that. Um, this might have been some kind of prophecy thing, this, this may have been you know, customary, I'm not really sure, but, but the women, the neighbors get the opportunity now to name this baby and they name him uh, Obed. Obed means worshiper or servant of God. That's what it means. If you have a pen, you might want to write that out to the side. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. So what you see now is that Obed is, is David's grandfather. Can you imagine being the person who gave birth to the grant to, to to your grandson to the grandfather of David just fascinating correct me if I'm wrong but David's kind of a big deal is he not I mean that's that's pretty good you got David in your family line that's pretty good and we're going to see that the family line gets even better at the end there are two things that I want to highlight this morning happiness and legacy they're, they're the two things I really want to drill in on just a little bit we live in a nation that lives for the pursuit of of happiness that's that's what it's all about I mean you talk to people and you say you know what do you want out of life and basically what they'll tell you is I just want to be happy we did a whole series on on Philippians and talked about joy as opposed to happiness 3,000 years removed from the story of Ruth the question is how do you get happy what is happiness what does it look like how do you get it what what's the process you're told that happiness can happen in a lot of different ways and in a lot of different places. You can go to seminars to find out how to be happy. You can read books on how to be happy. You can take a pill that's supposedly going to make you happy. They even have a thing now uh, in, in our culture that we call happy hour. You know, is, that, is there anything crazier than that? There's probably more destruction and, and horrible stuff that has come out of happy hour than, than anything there's a story in the Scripps uh, Howard News Service from March 30th, 2006. These two guys, Thomas Hargrove and Guido Stemple. I don't know what your name is, but thank God this morning that your name is not Guido Stemple. You, you got that going for you this morning. And Guido, if you're listening, I love you and Jesus loves you too. These guys are not Christians, but they did a study and, and they went out and they did a poll among Americans and they asked this question, are you happy or unhappy? And then they asked, what makes you happy or what would make you happy? 3,000 years from Ruth, the same themes emerge. 
The, the title of this is Get Happy. It's as simple as wedding bells and crying babies. And, and it reads like this. The keys to happiness, this is what these guys surmised after doing this study. The keys to happiness are simple. Grow up, get married, have children, go to church, and try to forget about the wilder days of youth. It goes on to say, the survey found that Americans with particular lifestyles, especially those having a family and planting roots in a community, are much more likely to say they have found contentment. Ruth got saved. She found God. She settled into Bethlehem. She found a church. She got married. She had babies. 3,000 years later, the answers are still the same. It says one of the things that you can do to, 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 to get happy is to get married, but it goes on. An even stronger factor is the power of organized religion, any religion, or a sense of well-being. And then it goes on to say Protestants, that would be us, especially self-identified born-again evangelicals, also report a high rate of contentment. contentment. You say, I want to get happy. Well, it sounds to me like if you follow the formula of Ruth, 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 if you follow her formula, if you follow the formula of this Scripps Howard New Service uh, deal from 2006, what you do is you get married, you get saved, you become a Christian, you settle down, you have some babies, you get involved in a church. They go out and they survey a bunch of non-Christians. And, and that's the answer they come back with. God made us male and female. He made us to be married. He made us to have children. He made us to worship him. He made us to go to church. He made us to plug into our community. It stands to reason that when we do the things that we are made by God to do, that we will be happy because we're doing those things that he made us to do. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not sin. That doesn't mean that there's not difficulty. That doesn't mean that it's always going to be easy. It doesn't mean that, that uh, you know, you see, I mean, I can imagine somebody's hearing this and saying, well, Brett, you just make that sound so easy. I mean, it would be great. If I would, you know, if I could go down and check off the list and pick all those things, I would do that. I realize that it's not that way. Uh, sin comes and there's difficulty and we live in a fallen world and I get all that but there can be joy uh, if it's done the right way. Um, the story doesn't start so good. It starts with famine and death and funerals. It ends with a family, a wedding, and a baby. What a contrast. Uh, a world without God providing is how it starts. And then uh, it finishes with God showing up and blessing in this unbelievable way. And then I want to talk to you just a little bit about legacy and we'll finish. I have two boys, and you've heard me say this before, but whenever I talk to my boys about things that we do or don't do, um, my kids are not ever told. I, I've really, I, you know, you, you always wonder how other people perceive you and how they see you. I hope that um, when you look at my boys, you don't see my boys and think, yep, typical preacher's kids, because I've not raised them as preacher's kids. I've, in fact, I've gone out of my way to raise them as anything but preacher's kids. And, and the way I would tell you that I've done that is uh, my kids have never been told we do this or we don't do it because dad's the preacher. My kids have never heard that. You know, we, we don't say, well, you know, dad's the preacher and it wouldn't look good 
uh, for dad the preacher if you guys do that no we do it or we don't do it because we're Christians we do it or we don't do it because we're Wilson's but we we don't do it because dad's the preacher that's not the whole motivation behind the thing so I've had many conversations with my kids where I've said hey remember whose name is tacked on to the end of your first name you have my name and what you do reflects on me as a Wilson you you are in a long line of Wilson's and you are expected to behave in a manner that brings uh, uh, the right kind of attention to that name so there have been many times that I've said hey we do that or we don't do that because of who we are but not because of who dad is uh, with Delaney there are certain things that I don't want her to wear there's certain things that I don't want her to do and the reason has never been because dad's the preacher the reason has always been because your your last name is Wilson and there is you have a you are a part of a legacy legacy is about taking people and ideas and putting them into the future that's really what legacy is all about what follows is a genealogy Boaz continues a legacy as he marries Ruth and as he provides this son. Ultimately, you will see the cool thing in this whole story is that Jesus comes through this line, through this family line. The reason this story is so important is that this family plays a vital role in the lineage of the Son of God. We pick up uh, at the end of verse 17, beginning at verse 18. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This is Obed they're talking about. This then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Solomon, Solomon the father of Boaz, Boaz the father of Obed, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David. There's only one other place in all of scripture where Ruth's name is even mentioned. Do you know where that is? It's Matthew chapter one. The opening lineage and genealogy of the family line of Jesus Christ is found in Matthew chapter 1. We're not going to read it. It, it is, you know, you, you come on that and you, you see those long lines of names. And if you've ever done like a read through the Bible thing and you come to those, the temptation is to just skip that part because you think, man, I don't want to go through that whole long list of names. But I would really challenge you that when you come to those genealogies in Scripture, and there are two or three of them, in fact, more than that, uh, take the time that it requires to go through and read those. What you're going to find is that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, which is where Ruth and, and Boaz hung out, and that's where Obed came from, this little city called Bethlehem, this little place that you would be unassuming, but yet it's just such this huge place to us as a people of faith. And then you go through that lineage in Matthew, and you, what you find and the reason I think it's important that you go through and read those lineages is that what you'll find is uh, you'll find the names of people who, uh, quite frankly, are messed up. I mean, one of the things that I talk about whenever we have visitors come to Cross Lane, and they, they, a lot of times I'll sit down with them and we'll talk about this church, I'll say, you know, I love this church, but one of the things I love about this church is that we are nothing more than a collection of broken people. That's all we are. And because we recognize that, we really don't take ourselves too seriously. We definitely don't look down our nose at anybody else. We definitely, no one in here, if you're a visitor, if this is your first time, let me assure you of this. No one in this place thinks they're any better than you uh, because we are just a collection of broken people with all kinds of issues and problems. And uh, we, are, we are like Ruth. We have been redeemed 
by God. But what you find as you go through the lineage, you find people by the name of Rahab, who was a prostitute in the Old Testament, who did this incredible act of faith. And you find her name later on in Hebrews chapter 11 as one of the great people in the hall of fame of faith. I mean, this woman, Rahab, you find Abraham, who in all likelihood was, was in Babylon and was probably, possibly a part of the building of the Tower of Babel. And God um, basically shows up for him and gives him a son in his old age, and that's really where we all come from. And uh, you find Ruth in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. You find David, who, if you know anything about the story of David, um, just, you know, he had some shining moments, beautiful, shining moments, but he also had some moments that. Um, would rival any bad thing that you've ever done. <clears throat> if you've ever thought, you know, I'm not a very good person, we could line you up next to David and you'd probably look pretty good. Um, these are the people that are in the line, the family line of Jesus. And I love the fact that the Bible does not shield us from that information. I love the idea that the Bible does not give us this pristine lineage of people in the line of Jesus. But instead, what we find are people who have not experienced uh, these, these perfect, put-together, wonderful lives. We find people who have had problems. We find people who've made horrible decisions. We find broken people, not unlike ourselves at all. We, we have gone through those same things, and you see those people when you come to the lineage of Christ. I want to end with this uh, contrast. I want to end with a contrast uh, of, of grace and redemption versus religion. If you've hung out here very long at all and you've heard me talk much, you have heard me say this many times. I cannot stand religion. I don't like to be called religious. I don't want to be religious. Um, I, I sometimes will do things as a knee-jerk reaction against religion. Religion basically is the, is the source of all the bad stuff uh, that Jesus gets blamed for. Um, you know, religion in our culture is the culprit behind the bad name for a lot of what you know when you hear christian people think automatically religion and when they when they put those two things together that's when our problems start religion says there are two kinds of people religion says there are good people and there are bad people and typically people in the church who are religious will basically say if you're like me you're good and if you're not like me you're bad that's not really what we want to be about at all. Uh, we are about redemption and grace. And redemption says that there are two kinds of people. There are repentant people and there are non-repentant people because all people are bad. It's, you know, the, the thing that we have to get past is this, and you've heard me say this before, you, you are not a good person who occasionally gets it wrong. That's not what you are. That's not what I am. We're not good people who who occasionally get it wrong if that was the case we should get it right all the time if, if you're good if you're a good person then you should be able to be good all the time but see that's not what you are that's not what i am we are bad people who occasionally get it right we are basically all you got to do to know what you are and what i am is look at a two-year-old look at a two-year-old and that is that is you and me in a, in a nutshell you, you have this 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 two-year-old thinks purely of himself if he doesn't get his way, he starts to, you know, kick and scream. He wants to be fed. He wants to be taken care of. He wants to, you know, it's all, the, the whole world revolves around him as a two-year-old. You know what? We never fully outgrow that, do we? 
We never fully outgrow that. Our our typical responses to things are to think about us first. And and, and I don't care whether it's marriage or whether it's you're talking about family and brothers and sisters or you're talking about a work relationship. The key to harmony, and you learn this as you get older. In fact, that's one of the ways we mark maturity in people is that they learn and they understand that it's got to be about more than me. You think about it. When you look at an adult and you say, that person's immature, what is it about them that makes them immature? You know what it is? They've never gotten past this point where it's become all about them. When you call someone who's, you know, let's say 35 years old, you look at them and you say, they're, they're immature. Basically, what you're really saying is, the only person that dude thinks about is himself. That's what makes a person immature. A person who matures is a person who says, your needs are important too. And I'm going to take a page out of the book of Scripture. I'm going to go right to Philippians 2. And I'm going to say that I'm going to treat you as more important than I'm going to treat me. So when you, when you come to these two ideas of grace and redemption versus religion, uh, religion, we need to put religion away. Religion is probably responsible for more bad stuff coming out of the church than anything you can think of. But when you think about redemption, when you think about the idea that Jesus Christ went to the cross and died for you, and Romans 3.23 says we are all sinners. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Christ went to the cross and he died. And on that cross, he purchased forgiveness, which is the one thing that we need. If we ever dream of going to heaven, what we've got to have is forgiveness. And then we stand one day before God, completely forgiven, totally righteous, pure, holy. Now, You hear me say that and you think, Brett, you don't know me. You don't know the things that I've done. You don't know the behavior that I was involved in before I started coming to this church. And here's what I want to say to you. I don't care. Because when Jesus Christ died for you and when you gave your life to him and when you became a Christian, what happened is you were completely forgiven. The Bible says it was a once-for-all sacrifice for all sin. That means you are a forgiven person. The only difference between me and a non-believer, a non-Christian, is that I have received forgiveness. I've said yes to a gift of forgiveness to me. And, And the person who's not a Christian hasn't said yes. Has nothing to do with performance. Has nothing to do with how many times you go to church or how much money you put in the plate. Has nothing to do with how many prayers you pray or how many acts of service you commit. Has nothing to do with how bad you are. Do you hear that? has everything to do with whether or not you are a forgiven person. That's why the people in this room who are Christians don't look down their nose at you because they know they are forgiven too. And they know that uh, they have experienced grace. You know, you hear a lot of talk these days about karma. You know, this idea that if you do good things, good things come back to you. You know what? I'm so glad we do not live in a world where karma is a real thing because if karma was a real thing, and I got what I deserved, it wouldn't be a very good life for Brett Wilson. But we don't live in that world. The truth of the matter is we live in a world where the reality is grace. Jesus Christ died on a cross, and we have G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. We do not get what we deserve. That is a reason to celebrate. What you find in the book of Ruth is redemption. You find God taking bad things and he makes them better and these people they're faithful they give their hearts and their lives to God and they pursue and they follow they try to do it the right way Boaz this man of faith does it the right way 
and God blesses him. That's what I want you to see. It's a story of redemption. And uh, I hope you've enjoyed the book of Ruth. Let's pray together and we'll be dismissed. Father, all of us in here, every single one, are sinners. We would not pretend to be anything other than that before you. We're messed up. We, we truth be told, we're pretty selfish. We probably do think more of ourselves than we do of anyone else. We have a tendency to look out for ourselves first. In so many ways, God, uh, I think if in the quiet, still moments of our soul when no one else is around and it's just you and me and, or you and us and no one else knows, we probably make ourselves sick. But Father, then we see Jesus who is perfect, who left the glory of heaven to come to earth to live a sinless life to die a, a hideous, cruel, torturous death to purchase for us the one thing that we need above everything else and that is to be completely forgiven. Father, we, we stand before you this morning stained, messed up. For those of us who are Christians, we stand before you this morning completely forgiven. It, it just, it, it leaves me speechless. Father, if there's someone in this room this morning who has never given their life to Christ, I pray this morning that you would help them to see what it's about and what it's not. And I pray that they would understand maybe for the first time that it's not about how good you are and it's not about how bad you are. It's about how forgiven you are. And that that can only happen through faith in the cross. It can only happen through faith in Christ, that you are the light of the world. So Father, we come to you in this moment, all of us. We bow at your feet and we worship you. You are awesome. Thank you for loving us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for visiting. We hope you've been encouraged. Please feel free to visit us online at clcchurch.com.